Hello, and welcome to Learning to Fly, the Science for the Anthropocene podcast brought to you from the Lancaster Environment Centre of Lancaster University. I'm David Tyfield, Professor of Sustainable Transitions and Political Economy at LEC, and I'm delighted today to be moving on to our very first guest from outside the university and someone with whom I've been looking forward to have this discussion for really quite some time. Because what we're going to be talking about today is, I feel, really quite a groundbreaking agenda. An agenda that is, in fact, also, I see it as at the centre of the paradigm shift of a science for the Anthropocene. And joining me for this discussion, we could be in no better company than Jamie Bristow. Jamie is co-director of the Mindfulness Initiative and after supporting UK politicians to form the Mindfulness All-Party Parliamentary Group and conduct a policy inquiry through 2014, he took over as director of the Mindfulness uh, Initiative and launched the Mindful Nation UK report. Since then, he's grown uh, this uh, think tank, the Mindfulness Initiative, into an influential policy institute And he's authored and produced a series of publications and worked with many decision makers from around the world, seeking to integrate inner capacities and contemplative practice into public policy landscape. He's also uh, a teacher of insight meditation. And as I'm sure you will tell from the conversation we're about to have, an extremely thoughtful and thought-provoking person. So I'm so happy... Uh, Jamie, to to be speaking <laughs> with you, welcome. Yeah, likewise, David. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So, what we're going to, you know, we're talking about your whole oeuvre, as it were, Jamie. But of course, we're going to focus also on this fantastic new report, which came out. Uh, I think it was officially published uh, in the beginning of May, um, with your co-authors Rosie Bell and Professor Christine Vamsler, who is a Professor of Sustainability Science at Lund University, the report which can easily be accessed on the Mindfulness Initiative's website uh, is called Reconnection, uh, Meeting the Climate Crisis Inside Out. And as I say, uh, I was so excited uh, to see this report come out, uh, so delighted to be uh, involved in it in my peripheral way. Uh, And again, thank you for that invitation. And now so excited to be discussing it with you and in public in a way that other people can engage with it. But let's start this discussion then. And you may have gathered that we have a standardised opening on these podcasts, mm. which is to ask, is science fit for purpose in the 21st century? Now, we had a little chat about this, didn't we? Um, because it's a sort of an unfair question to put to you because you're, you're not uh, an academic but I know you have very thoughtful opinions on this. So let's start with this question anyway. Is science fit for purpose in the 21st century? Well, there's a way in which science needs to uh, evolve and uh, it is currently not fit for purpose. Um, The work that I do uh, in partnership with academics is in some ways radical and part of that that change that we need to see. as we start to to bring in a kind of missing missing domain of uh, of knowing, missing domain of inquiry, um, uh, domain of understanding, uh, and that is the kind of uh, the inner dimension, 
the interior dimension of uh, of external problems that we're trying to to solve together. So that's increasingly getting a seat at the table in sustainability sciences, in public policy more broadly. But it is it is largely completely absent. And so it's great to be working with people like Professor Christine Vansdorf, for instance, who who started, you know, became um, well known as a sustainability uh, academic um, on the kind of tra- traditional external issues, technical, physical problems and solutions. And now she's you know bringing similar rigor to to including uh, how the mind interacts with these with these things. Fantastic. But there's a couple of ways, however, that, that you know, things are, you know, that inquiry is still within the status quo to some extent. A, a positivist and fragmented and siloed culture of, in, of, of empirical inquiry. And I was speaking to a colleague yesterday, actually, I, was, I gave a teaching day in Oxford and I was speaking to my co-tutor uh, about the about how what we were talking about in this teaching day was actually maybe pretty radical to be delivered in Oxford University or, in, or any university because of its intention to be integrative, integrative. And in fact, I covered integral theory that's associated with with Ken Ken Wilber, and uh, and uh, Chris Cullen, this uh, my my fellow tutor, was reflecting that the word university actually points towards this sort of um, unifying of inquiry and actually started out as a kind of theological, has theological underpinnings or cultural roots um, about bringing everything together into the inquiry of, of being or something like that. I mean, I'm, I'm not uh, not clear on, on, on really the history of this, but I thought it was really interesting that the word university is, is somehow about unifying, but yet we've got to a, a point where it's part of the mainstream, you know, part of our world that actually is a driving force of, of, of fragmentation, siloing, um, uh, separation that um, so many people now think that we need to address towards um, a more holistic worldview, a more joined up way of, of seeing ourselves and the problems of the world. So the, so the science, the culture of science, the institutions of science need to change to become more integrative. Um, that's the first thing. And the second thing is that uh, the way in which we, we inquire into um, the mind in, 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 in psychology uh, yeah, t- tends to be uh, you know, um, the most sort of robust forms of evidence. It's sort of neuroscience, you know, we, we, we still have this kind of like love affair with, even we don't really understand it, um, or examining people's behavior. And although we do actually um, sometimes unhelpfully depend on you know, quantitative self-report, which I have huge problems with uh, in the science of well-being and psychology and uh, contemplative practice, we, we don't give a lot of emphasis to uh, the, the reports from inside one's own heart and mind, what, you know, what we observe, what we see. And uh, I think this is a real missing piece that we, that we should treat the rigorous inquiry one can do by looking inside and seeing what happens and reporting on it with enough gravity. And so having people who are highly trained 
over decades exploring the mind in ways that you know have been have been um codified and and made more and more sophisticated over you know two and a half three thousand years like we don't on the whole care what they think and what they've and what they've discovered and that's a great that's a great shame so you know it goes beyond just sort of qualitative reports and uh you know mixed method studies or something like that but actually having a new a new approach to ev- evidence building and ways of knowing which puts actually a high degree of weight behind the report of expert meditators expert um empirical inquiry um practitioners essentially who look at how the mind and heart function in different ways and what things lead to distress and what things lead to joy and happiness and what things lead to skillful behavior but that's you know that's absent really from our our current psychology um academically well fantastic what a uh, what a scene set um jamie fantastic I and mean, you said the, the reflection on the idea of the university i mean um I, I was looking to various moments of goosebumps in this discussion and uh, i've already had one so uh, it was uh, <laughs> this this idea that you know it feels to me like we are at a moment uh, at the very apex of a pendulum swing uh, where our institutions of knowledge are uh, institutions of course in society more broadly but let's talk about knowledge and science have swung so far towards uh, the extraordinary productivity let's not deny that of reductionism um, and mm. you know breaking down into different disciplines and um, silos and fragmentation uh, and we are now not you know it's been talked about for I think you know generations really maybe through the entire period of modernity but i don't know it felt to me that in the this report uh, in this agenda we are actually seeing meaningful steps towards the swinging of the pendulum back in the other direction um so mm-hmm. it's you know a historical moment it feels to me let's turn to the report a little bit more can you perhaps set the scene on that tell us a little bit about if you don't mind your personal background, how did you come to the Mindfulness Initiative? And then what in that work led you to looking at uh, the problem of climate change, climate action uh, from this uh, this perspective? Yeah, thank you. Um, what, a, what a beautiful um, invitation. Yes. Um, and in fact, I came to climate action um, before I came to working professionally in, in mindfulness. But I came... To the story probably begins with my own inquiry into how my mind and, and heart function. I was an unhappy teenager, had uh, various difficulties, and I realised at that point that uh, you know I needed to sort of develop, work on myself, find things that I could practice to be to be a happier, nicer, more skillful person. So I already had sort of that that intention. That's really been a kind of an intention of my life, really. Find find those practices that can help me to grow, to mature, to to, to develop. And then it got to then over time, my intention has been to to find those practices in, in order to share them, sort of test them, and share the ones that I find that work, and uh, warn people off perhaps the ones that I don't think work. You know. Yeah. Um, so there's, that it wasn't really a professional intention, but that you know through my twenties that was there. Uh, sorry, well, it, it wasn't initially a professional intention. But I came across meditation in, in university myself as, as an undergrad, 18, 19 years old. 
And it was just one of a number of things that I, I picked up in a student society and, and put down. I would sort of binge on it for a little bit, but not, not, it didn't really transform my life. It was more of a, a fun, uh, just another experience, um, a little help now and again. And it wasn't until I was working in uh, advertising in my uh, mid, to, mid to late 20s that I that I started to practice more rigorously, more consistently. And and the, I, I did that for the reason actually most people come to to mindfulness or meditation practice. And that is I needed some kind of self-regulation benefit. And for, for me, I just needed to concentrate better. Like I wanted to to sit at my desk for longer hours to be a better med, um, advertising executive, to you know, make make better adverts and 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 to literally sell more um, like four by fours SUVs. Um, I thought nothing, uh, no, no, there was no problem in this. Being a chief executive of an ad agency was was my um, was my life's ambition. Um, you know, at university, I liked people who are kind of into climate stuff, people and planet. But yeah, I, I was never that personal, personally motivated. And so, yeah, it, it sort of staggers me. I was this kind of black knight of consumerism, really. I just um, thought it was the best job in the world and, and there was no, no, no ethical issues. Um, or at least if they were, I wasn't sensitive to them. So uh, I went from that to within the space of just sort of two or three years, uh, working initially for free and, and then getting a, a role in a, in a climate change campaign. And... Uh, I, I had uh, I was doing climate change campaign communications back in sort of 2010, and it was a dispiriting experience, realizing just uh, how difficult it was to get through to people. I don't know whether you've experienced this, you know, to, to, talking about your own, you know, uh, professional role in sustainability uh, sciences. But you know, if, if people ask you what you do and you say you work for a climate change campaign, they'll tell you what they think about climate change. Hmm. And so you become a kind of one person canvassing machine or like, you know, like yes, a surveyor. Punch bag, maybe. Uh, and it, yes. Yeah, well, yeah, right. Well, but certainly back in 2010, it was just so depressing. Um, and, you know, people were, uh, organizations were sort of finally abandoning the information deficit hypothesis, you know, the idea that we can just tell people more information and they'll change their attitudes and behaviors. So I was, you know, sort of realized that, that what I was doing there wasn't, um, necessarily that helpful uh and i looked at my own life and i thought why did i suddenly go from working in advertising to being a poacher turned gamekeeper essentially you know telling people not to buy suvs um after having tried to make them sexy and cool and attractive and i said you know i i just you know the story that made most sense to me was that i started meditating more I moved from what scientists have found uh, happens in a lot of people. I moved from self-regulation benefit to self-exploration, and then eventually to sort of self-transcendence, actually practicing for other reasons than than my own needs, um, self-liberation, self-transcendence. So I was like, well, well, where is this in, the, in, in people's theory of change about how we're going to get out of this predicament? Where's Where is mindfulness? Where is cultivating capacities of heart and mind, cultivating, you know, greater sensitivity and awareness that for me felt like it, it made the same facts land in a different way. And I turned, when this is a kind of mindfulness, stock mindfulness teaching phrase, but I turned towards the difficult. There was a day at which I suddenly realized that I'd been pushing this information away. And that not only had I just become more sensitive and open to it, but actually there was this sort of radical 
courageous act of, 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 of going from from having my fingers in my ears, sort of subconsciously resisting everything, to actually saying, oh no, I have to turn towards this difficulty with curiosity and openness and care, which are the attitudinal foundations of, of mindfulness, mindful awareness. And I bought a book, you know, George Monbiot's Heat, back in whatever it was, 2008, 2009. And that was, and that was it, really. So, so after that point, I was like, yeah, more people should know about this. I mean, simply my theory of change was more people should meditate and the world would be fine. Right. But obviously, yeah. having now worked professionally in this area for the last 12 years, I know it's really not that simple. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but but yeah, so so have started off inching my way towards essentially writing this report 12 years later, or publishing this report 12 years later, which is, first of all, wanting to work in some way spreading mindfulness, then working for Headspace, the meditation you know, in online platform and app um, for a couple of years, and then through that getting involved in policy work through that realizing i had an affinity with you know with talking about these things in in um in a kind of theoretical societal level um applications and and then eventually managed to once we had the credibility in the mindfulness initiative built up and once the, actually the evidence base was there in terms of looking at mindfulness and sustainable sustainability i was able to look directly at this subject and combine yeah, combine this sort of personal insight with a professional inquiry. Fantastic. That's really interesting to hear all, all that, uh, Jamie. And of course, that does culminate in this new report, this landmark report, which, as I've said, uh, is, you know, I think a, um, it, it's a landmark synthesis of a, a lot of work that's, um, you know, it's got this amazing goldmine of, uh, of references in the background as well. Um, but let's turn to that. So tell us, referring, of course, to the report, um, how do we currently think about the, the climate challenge and, and how does the report suggest we should think about it instead? Yes, as you, as you say, uh, David, yeah, we, we, you know, we've, um, we've worked with uh, many experts working at the intersection between uh, inner and uh, outer transformation towards sustainability, both in an academic context and, and also in, um, in the kind of pr- practitioner innovator space. Um, so so uh, Rosie, Christine and I are just, just so grateful and um, uh, to everyone's everyone's input from uh, yeah, academic institutions uh, uh, around the world. Um, and they represent uh, what, well, um, a, a new uh, a new movement to include this missing missing piece of of the inner, because until now this has largely been treated as a uh, as a an external physical technical problem, and 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 one that will be uh, solved with external technical solutions. And so, that we're we're starting to see in in various places from kind of the the the, the leadership in 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 policy making and, and and negotiation in the in the UN, for instance, uh, Christiana Figueres and and her um, her, her uh, colleague Tom Rivet Karnak, who um, really spare, spearheaded the negotiations in the 2015 um, Conference of Parties, the Paris Agreement that came out of it, um, and they've they've said how much the kind of the uh, their knowledge of the uh, of their own inner lives and inner resources, how much their own personal practice, meditation practices, have been important, um, and, and and holding up this the idea that um, 
uh, actually in Christina, Christiana um, Figueres' words, uh, she says that there are many changes to make over the next 10 years and each of us will will take different steps along the way, but all of us start the transformation in one place, our, our mindset. Um, they're pointing towards how our values, our beliefs, our intentions, our worldviews are, are, are primary in some way. Um, uh, so, so you know, the very t- top of, like I say, go- governance and leadership, but she's she's a, she's something of a, a lone voice all the same, or certainly an unusual, unusual to speak in those terms still. And in, yeah, policies themselves, in um in in um uh in un um, um reports um the inner dimension has been completely absent until the most recent uh report so which uh, has uh, which you know the mitigation um and adaptation reports that came out in early this year early to early 2022 for the first time had sections mentioning um well, phrases like um, inner transformation towards sustainability. And in fact, mentioned within the review of evidence, the words meditation and yoga as as two um, potential interventions, potential routes um, to, 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 to cultivating the inner conditions um, that help people to uh, to act collectively uh, in the direction of um, yeah, well, climate action. And... Uh, but yet, you know, so it's just about being mentioned in UN reports. It's just about, you know, some people like Christiana Figueres are mentioning it at, uh, uh, in in, in uh, conversations about this. But it's but it's uh, and, and actually for, for the first time, the EU EU Commission has has uh, put some money into um, sort of cultural and psychological pieces of the uh, puzzle in terms of. Um, uh, uh, facilitating climate action, but it's but it's really really early days. Um, so I want to say that you know the, the reconnection report I think is one of the first things to really bring together the argument in a coherent way I- into a policy report, into policy language. But really, it's sort of um, riding a wave that start that, that, that that's gathering in strength, but is 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 very uh, sadly. Uh, uh, absent has has sadly been absent until now. So, I mean, one of the things I very much hear you saying there, Jamie, is I mean, this stuff is just beginning. I mean, that is exciting. It's I completely agree with you. Maybe happening um, too slowly still. Um, hopefully, not too late. But certainly, there's a context for this, isn't there? Which is that. Um, there's a need for a, a shift in in approach. That the approach that's been taken so far to date uh, is not delivering. And I mean, there's mm. this wonderful line in the report where uh, you're talking about how it, it doesn't matter, sort of how much we're told it's this is serious. You know that mm. even to, mm. even clear warnings of civilization-ending disaster and you know the word catastrophe. Even these things are beginning to lose their edge. People have become numb or, or immune mm. to, to the impact, uh, maybe f- for various reasons. You know, some people are switching off because of fear. Some people are switching off because they don't want to change. Um, they don't want things to change. Uh, others are just completely confused. Um, but w- whatever mm-hmm. it is, the, the existing approach of simply saying, uh, well, we've got to you know, focus on this big problem out there in the world and simply change it. Uh, it's 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 hitting something of a wall. So at the very least, 
there, there's this need for a, a different approach. And here, here comes along this report, uh, this body of work, uh, which I would hope uh, that this you know, Science for Anthropocene initiative is a part of, a contribution to, uh, offering mm. a, a, a different way. I mean, presumably that sense of um, we need something else urgently is, is, runs right through the work that the, the three of you, the, the, the authors of this, um, uh, you know, inspiring you to do this work. Yes, abso- absolutely right. And this question of, uh, you know, why, why haven't we acted yet? Yeah, you know, a colleague of mine says, you know, um, we've had multiple IPCC reports. Um, they've been saying the same thing for, 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 for um, a long, a long time. Now we need an IPC, a, a report with IPCC level rigor. Uh, it's been a, a UN reports um, looking, looking at why we haven't acted. Nice. Um, that's 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 the challenge now, and that's a it's a psychological and cultural challenge. Uh, and in fact, yeah, another another sort of uh, leader in the area, de- deputy chairman of the Green Bloc in the European Parliament, says something similar. You know, the conclusions haven't changed in 15 years. There, there is climate change. Humans are causing it. Has a great impact. We have, we have the policy instruments to solve it, um, if we if we want to at a reasonable cost. But but, but yeah, he asked like, why is it not happening? Why is making changes so difficult? Um, and 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 he and his colleagues in the in the EU are now trying to understand that, and they and they want to include the question of of how can, you know, how can we develop inequalities and capacities um, that make change more likely. How can we, you know, find ways of, of, of cultivating those capacities, or, or, or at very least, in, including eco-psychology in our in our thinking and our theories of change and assessment of the problem? Okay, so let's turn to that specifically. Let's get to the the, the nub, which is what is this thing mindfulness? At least for the purposes of this work, I know that you know in conversations we've had previously, it's not a word that you're one hundred percent comfortable with. But tell us what it is, what it's not as well, and and how <laughs> it's related to to reconnection and to reconnection to the things that we're not currently connected to, and where that lack of connection is crucial for climate action. So yeah, mindfulness, the mindfulness world kind of caused problems to itself for itself when it. It initially started being uh, catching public interest, and some people sort of said to it, you know, it, it's you know, it, it's simply awareness, or it's simply this, and it's quite easy to bring into your life, etc. Um, and on the one hand, that was skillful at the time because it made people consider it and maybe start practicing it, but it really sort of sold it, sold it short because it's not actually that straightforward. It's not actually that easy to 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 really live in. In a, in, in a mindful way um, and so there's a lot of confusion and, and, and it turns people off they think they know what it is they might have read something about it they might have tried some practice that they were offered in a workplace or something like that and now they're closed off to it so if anyone you know feels a bit like that about it I'd really encourage you to to bring some sort of uh, yeah fresh fresh eyes uh, to it um, uh, now and, and potentially in the, in, in the future um, so I, sim- I start off by simply defining it. Um, and uh, crucially, I think mindfulness is best understood as a natural capacity. So it's, um, it's part of our you know, evolutionary inheritance. Uh, it's not just for people who have you know, bought the books and joined the club. Like uh, We're all somewhat mindful some of the time, at least uh, most of us perhaps. Uh, and it's, this natural capacity enables us to 
pay attention intentionally to the present moment experience inside yourself and in and in your environment with an attitude of openness allowing curiosity and care so this is a natural capacity where we can choose to to cultivate so that more of the time we we are able to attend intentionally to the present moment inside ourselves and our environment with an attitude of openness curiosity and care so it's about regulating the attention being able to have a handle on your mind more of the time and having your awareness have certain qualities these intentional qualities um, which work together to broaden the bandwidth of perception uh, to make us more sensitive and open to novel information um, which is crucial in the context for instance of, of the climate crisis and i mentioned that in the context of my own personal story um, and and so the um, reconnection report also however crucially talks in the same breath about compassion so whereas our you know officially my organization although called the mindfulness initiative that is actually about mindfulness and compassion training both of them and and, and the overlap i mean that is really blurred now so on most most mindfulness courses you would probably have some explicit pro-social affect cultivation practice practices or meditations so to help you to feel more kindly friendly compassionate to, to, to develop the heart as well as the mind and and compassion training actually requires mindfulness as a kind of base um a, a base capacity before you kind of focus on developing compassion or at least most most um such interventions do focus on mindfulness um first and so compassion we define as an inner motivational system which combines the capacity to engage with and feel moved by suffering with a will to then help and both mindfulness and compassion can be intentionally cultivated through evidence-based practice. So, that, so these, these, these qualities, these capacities will naturally vary across the population. They are associated at a kind of population level, even before you look at practice and training and meditation or whatever. If you just look at the associations between these things and various things that also vary, you know, <laughs> co-vary uh, across society, you know, mindfulness and compassion are associated with greater levels of happiness, relationship satisfaction, things like, you know, decision making and uh, faculties and etc. So they vary naturally. You may already be somewhat mindful and compassionate, but, you know, you can choose to be to have greater awareness, greater openness, greater curiosity, greater care, greater compassion if you wish to. And you can train in those things. There has been, you know, like I say, a history of doing so over thousands of years in some cultures. And over the last 40 years, we have developed ways of doing that in a secular context that don't require, um, uh, you know, religious belief and uh, have been tested in many thousands of trials. Um, so at the last count, in terms of the number of academic studies that have uh, had the word mindfulness in the title or in the abstract, it's got up to 17,000 academic publications now, um, including 2,000 literature reviews and meta-analyses. So it's pretty, it's pretty established stuff. And it got to the point where um, we, we know that, that, that mindfulness um, increases uh, well-being, uh, reduces mental health issues like depression, anxiety. It's available for free on the NHS for people with uh, less severe depression or want to stay well after having been depressed. Yeah, it's associated with cognitive performance, pro-social behavior, et cetera, et cetera. And we've got to the point now where we can 
we can start to, I guess, and this is where my work comes in, we can, we can start to get all these like fragmented benefits, which are sometimes used to dismiss mindfulness. Oh, you know, like people think it's a panacea, like it can't possibly really, you know, it's too good to be true. It's got all of these different benefits. People think it's got, um, uh, you know, say it's good for all of these different things, therefore it must be rubbish and snake oil of, of, of some kind. And although, you know, it has been oversold in the past and there are ways in which that has, you know, major limitations and I'm not saying, you know, it's, 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 it's un- uncomplicated, but rather than dismissing it because of all of these different ways in which it seems to be helpful, um, you know, mindfulness and compassion practice, um, in, instead we can start to create a narrative, a framework, uh, join the dots into a constellation um, that 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 makes sense of these things as foundational capacities, foundational human capacities that are just good for lots of lots of things, because they are they are they are the kind of they will condition the quality and the shape of mind that we have and we bring to everything that we do and therefore have some bearing on everything we do. And you know, in the words of one leadership trainer like the quality of any intervention depends upon the inner qualities of the intervener and uh, that's true in our you know in our professional context as well as our personal relationships that one of the narratives that we're creating by joining these dots is is um, using this narrative of reconnection to make sense of all of this that's fantastic so i mean let's take this point about foundational capacities about many things about you know just generally good life the good life even mm. um mm. and let's turn with that specifically to, to you know the grand problems uh, the the terrifying problems uh, of of climate change mm. could you say a little bit about you know the the specific benefits or contributions to climate action or problems of the anthropocene as, as we're discussing them here um that that mm. come from developing these foundational capacities what are the specific foundational capacities relevant to, to climate action and and how are they relevant to climate action how is their absent their absence part of the, the the existing stalemate or problem or indeed the the creation of the problem of climate change in the first place mm, yeah absolutely so so i mean first of all i think there's a step where where, where it's worth mentioning that christine bamster at, at, at the london university sustainability center uh, and I did a uh, conducted a research partnership where we into, interviewed uh, 25 politicians and policymakers around the world and consulted nearly 100 uh, experts working in this in this uh, area. Um, and we uh, and we asked them, you know, when you talk about the inner dimension of the climate crisis, what do you say? And then particularly, how you know, what do you, how do you think about the role of, of, of inner capacities like foundational capacities like mindfulness and compassion? Uh, and we found that. Um, the way in which they saw this area fell into kind of four categories. There's one where like, the mind is a victim of the climate crisis. There's one category of narratives where mind is the driver of the climate crisis. Uh, mind is a barrier to climate action. And then some people who understood those three categories started to see or start to talk about how that there's a vicious cycle between those those things. And that, um, for instance, uh, you know, cl- climate impacts mental health. We deal with um, mental distress actually potentially by through um, a retail therapy, buying more stuff and and, <laughs> and making things things worse. Is a very simple example, and and so the capacities 
um, that we're talking about can can intervene in, in in all of those different ways. They can help us to be more resilient uh, and, and 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 mitigate some of the impacts that the climate has on our mental health. Um, make us more likely to uh, be in a in a kind of neurophysiological approach state um, and work with others towards fixing things. Uh, particularly if we develop positive emotions as well as re- I mean, help to regulate the negative emotions. Um, and so that kind of fits into that sort of first category of impacts um, or, uh, of interactions. Um, there are ways in which these capacities might reduce the extent to which um, uh, our, our psychology, our culture is driving the crisis in the first place. So, for instance, we might use the greater level of, you know, sensitivity, discernment um, and uh, awareness that we normally in a mindfulness course like um, use to look at where our distress comes from in our lives, how we might change our lives for the better. Uh, and that's normally applied in a kind of individual lens or maybe a kind of a familial context or a professional context. But there are ways in which we can actually look at, have get a broader lens and look at how, and, and these, these yeah, compassion and mindfulness can help us to what we do, what we describe as develop wiser wanting, you know, like actually wanting what's really good for us individually and collectively, rather than um, driving ourselves off a off a, off a cliff. Uh, and in the third way, um, there's reason to believe that it might help us with climate action, reducing the barriers to action, such as the values action gap. Um, so, you know, we might have a uh, more or less accurate picture of the world. We might actually value doing something about it. Um, um, but even then, we might not behave in 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 line with those intentions, those values. Um, and mindfulness is often taught or explained. Um, uh, like the first thing you might hear from a mindfulness teacher is that mindfulness helps us to respond rather than react. It's about increasing the gap in between sort of stimulus and response and act more in line with our values, uh, act more of the time uh, on purpose. Um, rather than blindly out of habit, impulse, or just because it's the status quo. And so there's 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 reason to believe that yeah, um, uh, considered, responsive, mindful action could help us to to close that gap. So I've just picked sort of three different examples there and and and, and, and match them up to those categories of narrative I was describing. Um, and 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 actually in the in the fourth one in terms of the um, uh, vicious cycle, particularly when it comes to um, uh, the body, uh, interpersonal neurobiology, threat response, you know, fight, fight, freeze, or approach state, um, and the interaction with trauma, how we get stuck in certain like um, threat response patterns because of traumatic uh, events or, or, or passages of life. Like these things will condition how we respond to, say, the threatening information that the, 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 the ecological collapse is on the way or societal collapse is on the way. And and can make all the difference as to whether we, we we you know that becomes a breakdown loop, where we become you know more antagonistic or um, less easy to, to 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 work with, or whether it you know it leads to a breakthrough loop. Um, so so yes, including understanding of trauma and, and 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 threat response and and the capacities that help us to regulate those things um, healthily versus in in problematic ways is is a crucial part of the picture. I mean that was. One of the, I mean, it's 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 part of the literature, I suppose, with which I'm least familiar. So it was extremely interesting in the report for me. Uh, was this psychological literature uh, about trauma and its capacity for 
passing intergenerationally. And where, I mean, you talked about let's not go into, you know, let, let's let's avoid a, a breakdown loop. But I suppose, in a sense, we've we've been on a breakdown loop for quite some time. It's not it's not a a, um, a sudden and uh, you know a present phenomenon. It's just we're sort of reaching the buffers of it. I mean, you would mm-hmm. in 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 this dis- dis- discussion about trauma, you know, coming from the social sciences generations of writing about uh, modernity uh, with modernity effectively is just one great big trauma one after another mm. for everybody mm. um, and you know now we are recognizing that there are specific forms of tra- trauma associated with uh, ecological breakdown uh, the various uh, f- uh, relationships that we have uh, as minds uh, with that that you've mentioned um, but where uh, in a sense um, we're already locked into a dysfunctional feedback loop, aren't we, Jamie? Mm-hmm. Um, and, mm-hmm. and and the the challenge surely is to turn that around. It's uh, but we'll only do that by first stopping and recognizing it, which is to me uh, where this work, where the recognition of um, inner dimensions of transition is just so important. If that's what's going on, then already then. Uh, we're clearly not going to turn the ship around by not even acknowledging that that's what's happening. So it, mm-hmm. it just feels sort of uh, central to me. Absolutely right. And one of the things that we that we focus on in terms of the trauma of modern modern living is is what you might call the attention economy. And the attention economy, the way in which our our um, you know, free market um, system is incentivized to to distract us to fragment our attention to capture our attention and then sell it to the highest bidder for you know normally advertising revenue mm-hmm. um, this actually goes way back and has been developed hand in hand with urbanized living which has I mean, has its own own issues and it's it's it's, it's coming into the spotlight now with the popular documentaries like the social dilemma and the fact that the people behind that particular piece of that piece of film have testified at Congress and you know, are leading a campaign to to really you know, bring our collective attention uh, to the deleterious effects and and, and, and you know the, the problematic effects for the functioning of our democracy, let alone our men- mental health. Absolutely. Um, yeah. This goes way back. I mean, it's, it's getting the attention now. You know, the last last ten years because it's just been ramped up so much with social media and the big tech. Um, you know, attention is the new oil, um, and so it's very difficult to slow that beast down. But this goes way back to to the invention of the printing press, even and the initial newspapers, and and you know, newspapers wanting to be as shocking, salacious as they can be, mm-hmm. in order to grab us and sell our minds, our eyeballs, to uh, to to advertisers. And you know, it's over a hundred years ago. I think 1908 that George Simmel, the sociologist. First, first recognised that urbanised living and the attention economy being part of that already um, was leading to, to, to people feeling overwhelmed mm. and starting to numb themselves. Like you can see, compared to sort of like um, more uh, agricultural or, or you know um, uh, non non-urban populations, people people yeah. The, 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 what I think he, he, he described as the the, the, the quick uh, and shifting stimuli of urbanised uh, life lead to a kind of disassociative shutdown yes. in our in our perceptive faculties and yeah we we uh, this has only got worse and worse and worse and through the particularly 40s there's um, 50s talk of the word overwhelm 
and then future shock because the world world changes so much that we are constantly shocked by change that we have no sense of grounding and 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 yeah mindfulness is in its simplest form a form of attention training and it isn't sufficient for us to live in the context of big tech you know who know us better than we know ourselves and have algorithms that are you know w- without human control are are um you know creating stuff that's more and more able to distract and, and capture and keep our attention and so are we equal to that uh, because we've got a mindfulness practice no but it might help us to get the kind of defense mechanisms and, and protocols in place that, that that help help us and uh and yeah it should definitely be part of the picture and and, if, and back into the context of the climate crisis you know we're not going to solve a problem we're not attending to um and if we're if we are if we are distracted and we haven't got ways to um to to, to, to develop that core faculty which is the foundation of choice and, and binds together and renders our whole world for us and all of our other fa- cognitive and emotional faculties are rendered by our powers of attention. Like those who are sh- uh, grabbing and shaping our attention are making our worlds for us and they haven't got our best interests at heart on the whole. Absolutely. There's a couple of wonderful turns of phrase in the report. You, you talk about a world designed for attentional hijack. I think that should be a bumper mm. sticker. Um, and, um, you know, and also another quotation from the report. At the moment of our greatest peril, we have never been more distracted from what is happening around us. I mean, it, it just mm-hmm. captures your, what you've just said perfectly. So what you've just been talking about there, Jamie, leads us on very nicely, completely uh, unrehearsed uh, to <laughs> this, uh, to, to sort of my next set of questions, really, which is, you know, at this, the core of uh, the Reconnection Report is this whole sense of reconnection. And, you know, you're talking about how modern urban life has uh, been designed to, as it were, separate us off. And, and sure, lo and behold, it does that. But a key element of this reconnection, and specifically in terms of climate action uh, that you talk about in the report, is is reconnection to nature. Now, mm. there's, uh, I think, uh, you, you, you document the chapter in verse there that shows what I think is, you know, probably sort of common sense but like gravity needs to be documented and and proven before we really believe it Um, which is that uh, we really have to care for the planet uh, if we're going to be willing to do anything about it so there's there's that sort of set of questions really you know about um, how important is reconnecting to nature but I wonder if I could also play a bit of devil's advocate here in terms of saying is this sort of is this framing in terms of nature and reconnecting to nature um, perhaps the, the the most useful way of of engaging with this agenda? Now, I have a particular beef, I suppose I would say, <laughs> uh, with the language of nature um, because it feels to me very much to capture something of the dissociated, alienated, modern Western worldview, which is precisely what we're trying to get away from, that, you know, nature is uh, part of a binary or is broadly understood uh, in that way, uh, at least in our culture today. And, and so it doesn't really matter what side uh, you fall on that binary. You, you might have no regard for nature whatsoever. It's, it's just standing reserve. It's, it's sort of lower mm. life forms. Well, obviously, that's a problem for climate action. But I feel it's just as problematic to sort of side with nature, uh, to sort of see nature as a romantic uh, Mm. transcendent. 
Um, and rather, you know, this is from speaking from my own experience. Uh, I, I've also, uh, I, as I'm sure I've, we've discussed, you know, I've been meditating for 20 odd years uh, with my own practice. And it feels to me like what mindfulness, it's sort of selling mindfulness short by talking in terms of nature. Because what it actually allows us to do is to come to a, a meaningful, in fact, really visceral experience that I am nature. It's not that I have to connect with it. It's I am life. That life mm. is inseparable from me. I am inseparable from it. So I don't have to be absorbed by it. I don't have to uh, deny myself in its in its presence or, or you know fight for it. I just need to be life. I need to recognise that I, I'm part of it. I don't know if you have any mm. thoughts on that. Yes, I mean, f firstly. Um... I really acknowledge that um, it's easy to have a romanticized view. Um, and in fact, I was speaking to a colleague in Iceland the other day about this particular issue. And he said that people, people in Iceland have a very different baseline relationship with nature. Nature is something to be overcome. You know, in yeah. many generations, they have fought nature to survive in a very inhospitable place. Um, and only very recently has that become a comfortable relationship and uh and that's true in many other um parts of the of the world as well i also also completely acknowledge that these are just these are just sort of concepts um tokens language that we put that we, we put on something which ultimately has no real in sort of quote marks um sort of boundaries or delineations or um um, they don't exist from their own side as, as, separ as separate things, but they, but um, but it's a a way of looking that can be helpful to pick up and put down. The way of looking being urbanised, particularly concrete jungle <laughs> style, mm -hmm. um, uh, human environment, and the more organic environment filled with other than human life forms, um, because there are important ways in which. They have different impacts on the human being. They have different impacts on uh, the world, on the climate, on you know our, our ecosystems, etc. But I really agree with you then that, that that's not always a helpful distinction. Um, where it is a helpful distinction, I think, is in uh, climate psychology, eco psychology, mm -hmm. um, because what we've found is that nature is one of the most powerful predictors, uh, or nature connection. Michael, is one of the most powerful predictors um, of whether people will um, exhibit pro-environmental or um, you know, environmentally conservative behaviours. So those who have sort of a close relationship with nature are, uh, are roughly twice as likely to, to act to, to protect it. Um, and there are, some, you know, there, there are some interesting and quite simple ways of, te of testing this in kind of self-report where you have two circles and one's labelled nature and one one's labelled me or, or humans or something um and you have different options you can you can take you can tick the box that which that we, which most represents your your feeling of the relationship either two completely different circles uh, overlapping circles at, the, at different different levels of overlap and then one single circle labels both nature and me if you see what i mean yes and and whether you you know whether an intervention helps you to move towards that circle where there's a single circle rather than two very separate ones is one of the most powerful indicators of 
of positive change when it comes to yeah, environmental behaviour. But ultimately, you know, are we are we expecting or aiming for for just one circle for for everybody? Because you know, again, there there, there are ways in ways in which in Iceland, for instance, that would be quite a difficult thing to ask. There are ways in which actually it's been very helpful for for them, for them to see themselves in in creative tension at the very least, or if not in in in, in a fight with nature in order to survive. But this um this connect this this lack of connection over time, this disconnection from nature. Um, is is part of our thesis uh, about what is wrong, and I haven't really actually unpacked that properly, and, and why the report's called reconnection. But we found that in in our research, talking to people about how they talk about the intervention of the climate crisis, there was a lot of variation in how people brought that in and tried to include it within a policy or academic way. But the one narrative which seems to be starting to win out, or at least for us, felt the clearest, most coherent narrative, and one which we felt we could we could most easily say what we what, what we needed to say within it was this idea that um, we have become separated from each other in important ways, from nature and indeed from ourselves, and that those those different domains are interrelated. And we we, we describe in the report how there is some ways in which they're interrelated, and and so yeah, self, other, and nature being those, those important things. And we need to we need to re- reconnect. And it's partly about the history of Western thought back to the Greeks, Christian ideas, humans in dominion over nature versus living in a harmonic web of life, as is the case in indigenous and some Eastern uh, ancient sort of schools of thought. And, and then there's kind of, you know, the scientific methods and various other things that separated us um, from from nature and from, from, from things from each other. And uh, yeah, there are more um, contemporary ways in which, um, you know, polarization and um, so uh, that, that have made, that exacerbated our, our disconnect from each other, as well as breakdown of community, social trust, and, and increases in alienation and that kind of thing. That's really helpful, Jamie. And again, it sort of leads on very nicely to sort of the next sort of issue I was going to suggest that we discuss briefly, which is taking us back to where we started, in a sense, a, a stepping stone towards getting back to talking about science, really, which is that. There is, on the one hand, a publicly accountable, unemotional, rational register of discourse. Um, it's the the form that is uh, upheld uh, within the public sphere in governmental debate. Of course, you know we've also seen very graphically over the last decade or so, and with everything that you've mentioned about the challenges of social media and to to uh, democracy and. Um, public discussion that there's all this other stuff going on there as well but you know this is still the ideal that we we sort of aspire to and then on the other hand um there's and i i think that's legitimate and 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 important and valuable so you know that I'm not mm. trying to throw out baby with the bathwater here um but on the other hand there is at least uh some tension in some of the um ways in which public discussion we're aiming to open it up by by engaging with the agenda that you set out in terms of you know uh, being able to talk meaningfully seriously take uh, to be able to contribute to public debate from a position of personal experience um, mm. from um, being able to talk uh, about what we could I think summarize with the the, the word uh, noetic you know, of of you know of the mind, taking mindfulness mm. seriously, taking the mind seriously. Well, the different mm. dimensions of this, 
you know, that there's uh, there's aesthetic discussion. It really matters. You know, one of the biggest blocks to windmills, for instance, uh, to to wind turbines, is that they they spoil the landscape. Well, that that mm. that that can be nimbyism, but it might not be. Uh, it might mm. be a, a beauty really, matters. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, exactly. Yeah. Um, there's 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 an effective dimension. You know that. Uh, people uh, we are effective beings and probably you know with Hume uh, the passions determine our worldview rather than vice versa um, mm. and then there is you know a whole world of ethical and value and conative you know sort of uh, will-based uh, forms of thinking um, mm. th so bringing the whole person into this space um, is I completely agree essential it's 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 the missing piece and yet there is undeniably surely still some tension there with the familiar roles the familiar registers of of public political and indeed scientific discourse now just one final point on that which is that mm. it seems to me that a lot of what i've just said that we need to bring into uh, to discussion would probably once upon a time have been uh, subsumed within discourse that was take, uh, taken care of by various forms of spiritual and or religious life. Mm. Um, and, you know, so it's no surprise that it, it, science has, you know, actually deliberately divorced itself from this, uh, from, from many of these things. Uh, forms of, of talking and thinking um, mm. but we are in a sense I, I, I don't know I think there are upsides I look for upsides and w certainly in Europe I don't know so much not so sure about the United States but I think probably there too but certainly in Europe it's undeniable that with Charles Taylor we live in a secular age we live in a post-religious age uh, and I think mm. a lot of the taboo I mean sorry go ahead I, I, I... I'm, I mean, I, I think I'm picking up ways in which that may no, may longer be the case. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but in the post secular, as it's starting to be called. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So, th but th there's there's. I mean, this is perhaps associated with this swing back of the pendulum that I mentioned earlier. Right. Right. Yes. Right. But um, the reason that the pendulum can swim back, I think, is partly because uh, not just there's appetite for it, and there's appetite because there is. Uh, demonstrable emergency in the world needing it um, but but also I think because a lot of the taboo associated with it uh, has has dissipated um, you know as mm. generations uh, you know growing up in a particular way have just to, to be frank died out you know mm -hmm. um, you know the, the people who are alive today um, are probably not so scarred as it were if we can put it that way mm, by by their right. encounter with with re, um, explicit re, religiosity um yeah uh, and and so the result of that is that um maybe the big one of the big barriers standing in the way of being able to juggle both of these registers is is not so big any longer uh, but, I mean, what do you think? Is there this tension still? Is it one that you had to juggle in the report? Uh, no, I, I'd say that, that hasn't come into the report. We're, we're, we're very much working within policy context, policy paradigm. We're, we're using the empirical evidence available to us 
there's enough in that evidence to thread together into a narrative which touches on spiritual concerns you know when we talk about connection to self or 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 connection to nature or whatever these this you know can um adjoin um you know, the spiritual domain or like you know touch upon that absolutely yeah um but, but but there's a there's enough of what we've you know there's there's enough to work with that we can appeal we can appeal for action within this narrative of of, of reconnecting in an entirely I think empirical way. However, there's so much in your, in your question that I'd love to 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 explore, even though it sort of goes beyond really what this this particular piece of work um, uh, includes. Please, please, yes, and. Uh, you know, I, I really like the work of my colleague Jonathan Rousen, who when he was at the RSA in the UK, the um, uh, as, as sort of director of the Social Brain Institute, I think it was called, wrote the Spiritualized Report, looking at the the the, the role of well, what is most important to us? Is it, why is the what what is most important to us sort of taboo in public discourse and in politics and policy? Um, and and the trends in particularly in the, in, in, in British culture um, towards people saying they're kind of spiritual but not religious, and very few people actually saying I'm that out and out atheist and not at all spiritual, you know. Mm. But can no longer be can be assumed that people are Christian, and indeed, you know, Rowan Williams said that you know, when asked is Britain a Christian country, he said it's probably a post-Christian country, by which he meant that you can no longer take for granted that people have the um, core beliefs in the doctrines of Christianity, but they have a kind of the, 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 the furniture or the landscape of a Christian mind shaped by those stories and those ways of seeing, but they often have a kind of spiritual sensibility that, 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 that isn't completely aligned with the core beliefs. Um, so we're at a really interesting time in that regard. But the, the thing I'd like to bring in, and really I'd only have time to plant this seed really in people's minds, uh, is is I think uh, really key in how this spiritual sensibility is is possible alongside a belief in science and skepticism is a movement to what has been described as a post postmodern mind or culture or philosophy. Um, and it's also post-postmodernism has also been called metamodernism, and there are a number of other kind of um, schools and, and and groups. But, that, but this is essentially the idea that in in the kind of modernist turn, you know, after we had traditional values, Christian, you know, um, Islamic or whatever, like the traditional values, where um, we're coming out of a um, you know religion religiously dominated world, and it's a sort of monopoly on truth and um, ontology etc into a kind of modernist uh, world where we have um we can you know where there's a claim that things are real and we can know them but you know through scientific method um and what's and, and particularly you know most often you know, positivist as well so what's most you know what's real is what's out there and consciousness is never phenomena um and there's certainly nothing going on here in terms of like you know gods and things and then postmodernism comes along with some very helpful critique showing that you know there is no view from nowhere and actually science itself um is compromised um by some uh by by assumptions by by a view and that it can't have the, the sole claim on 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 what is real and true um because there's the biases and distortions of you know the perspective that it's built from and the people who are building it um and all that's very 
helpful, it's best at deconstructing, critiquing, not building anything new. And people have started to become frustrated. And initially it was the artists who became frustrated and then the philosophers and now sort of political theorists, etc., who are like, well, we want to build something new. We want to... We want to say what we think is probably good, true, and beautiful, even though we we know we, we know it, it. There is no view from nowhere. We can't be sure. It's always it's always provisional and iterative and probably partially wrong. But we want to stick a flag in the in the sand somewhere and say, I think, as far as I can tell, this is true and this is good and this is beautiful, and 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 and, and go beyond the relativism and say it isn't just a fact that. You can, you know, everyone's got their own truth and we can all have our own truths and we can all like, you know, actually, I think there is a way in which we can, we can, we can, we can feel towards true truth, but we don't abandon the critiques of postmodernism. And th- and this gives us the, the, the metamodern position, which, which allows to oscillate or to hold in superposition the worldviews and the beliefs of science and the scientific project at the same time as acknowledging, actually, there are some inconsistencies there and, um, there are some blind beliefs and assumptions in scientism, as, it, as it's sort of derogatorily called. And I, I, I want to also try on and hold these other ways of looking that may be theist or animist even. I mean, that's mm-hmm. very common now, actually, a kind of animist belief. That's not to say that um, there's spirits, but like a kind of um, panpsychism, which is a very credible philosophical position uh, these days for, for contemporary philosophers. And say, you know, that uh, these are all possibilities, and I will hold them in a stack of of, of, of possible things. Um, in this much more sort of, it's the middle way between the the, the kind of the, the, the realism claims of modernism and the kind of the unreal claims of of postmodernism. Um, but yeah, I haven't, probably haven't said enough to make sense of that. But just to kind of no, point fantastic. in that direction, yeah, I think that facilitates exactly what you're describing, really, yes. not abandoning science holding you know holding it in sacredness and having it value but also allowing these other ways of being and seeing to creep in too yes absolutely a fant- an amazing agenda of such an exciting uh, you know array of things that are now opening up as serious propositions propositions that one can be taken seriously as as in entertaining and um, but i mean let me just reflect on some of the things that you just said there Jamie or respond to them because um it, it's a number of things that pop into my mind. The first is about uh, you know the, the, the tension um, between uh, sub, you know what's sometimes called now uh, the sub- subjective uh, or subjective science as opposed to objective science. And it seems to me very much that you know in the agenda you just set out there or you know presented for us, there's I think a growing recognition. That if science is first and foremost about sort of productive uh, surprise empiricism, then that is massively enabled, not uh, disabled, by being able to be empiricist uh, about the basis of that empiricism. That is, Mm. in in terms of our subjective experience. So, in a Mm. sense, turning to mindfulness and bringing mindfulness into science uh, is actually... uh, it's just um, it goes beyond the uh, postmodern critiques, uh, useful as they are, as you've mentioned. I agree with you completely on that. Um, but it's actually an invitation not just to be, as it were, um, theoretically scientific about science, but I- I- empiricist uh, about mm. uh, about empiricism, um, which I think uh, is an extremely important agenda. I mean, uh, can we? 
can can we uh, are we really you know looking uh, if we've already come loaded with all kinds of uh, assumptions about how science is or, or must be done to, to to put it that way uh, the, mm. the, the the second thing is that you you mentioned about this the, the challenges of as it were sort of capital r realism and i suppose that's what i was trying to get to a little bit with my question about nature because i i feel that nature is um you know an, an uber realist term in 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 many people's vocabulary so the opportunity to to engage you know to, to really engage with nature as one engages with it rather than than thinking of it as again a, a capital n nature a, a reality mm. which is already there and all i need to do is switch off and in commune uh, that seems um to be you know a really important element again going back to that empiricism and the the mm. the, the the creativity of that empiricism that mind is actually uh, coming to bear and potentially building something new but potentially also something new that is beautiful and good uh, as well in in, in its um, c connection in its uh, scientific engagement even with uh, in quotes nature and and that leads mm -hmm. to my sort of third point really which is a, a terminology which I was determined that we would at least mention in passing because <laughs> it's so it's so important to science for the Anthropocene as an initiative um, as uh, as you know but also is is mentioned in the report which, which is the idea of social mindfulness um, mm, um, bringing mindfulness into uh, it, back into the world, as it were. And uh, I know that there are a number of initiatives uh, now using this terminology, all of which I think are fantastic. But I, I do notice slight differences uh, in um, the, the use of the terminology. And I wonder if I could just mention one which I see and, uh, and then, you know, uh, you can reflect on that, which is that uh, I think um, quite a number of the, uh, in quote, social mindfulness uh, initiatives out there are, they start from a mindfulness perspective. They start from a, a personal mindfulness practice perspective. Um, right. And then the, the, the goal there is to uh, bring that, that perspective, that, that practice um, to bear upon social contexts, um, social problems, etc. I've been using the phrase, and Science of the Anthropocene uh, uses the phrase, in terms of it coming rather from a, uh, a social scientific perspective. So it's actually about um, social mindfulness to, to me, as I've been using it, is about this, uh, it's a process of collective, of the mindfulness of the collective, as it were. Mm, um, mm -hmm. So um, how can we better deliberate together uh, in order to, as it were, allegorically, um, develop or evolve the collective mind rather than just mm. our, our personal one? Um, mm. And where this, you know, where th therefore mindfulness or rather mindfulness compassion practices therefore become a key precondition not just for the substantive learning that is needed to go about recreating and reconstructing the world you were talking earlier about about how we might want to uh, have an alternative we might want to might want to do something else well we we, we need to it's it's an urgency so uh, we need mm. learning uh, to to reconstruct and rebuild the world but we also need 
uh, what Bateson called learning too. We need uh, learning how to learn uh, how to do that. Yes. And part of that, it feels to me, that a key precondition for being sufficiently open, sufficiently uh, inquisitive, su- sufficiently uh, relaxed you know, in the approach state uh, rather than the threat mm-hmm. state that you mentioned, is precisely... Yeah. Uh, processes of of mindfulness and being able to be self uh, consciously mindful together uh, and and mm-hmm. bringing that into forms of deliberation even on very very specific potentially quite technical or certainly socio-technical issues so you know for instance i've been doing some work with colleagues uh, looking at a, a very thorny question uh, about transformation of infrastructure for a, a particular place in order to to tackle the the um uh, the existing emissions uh, transport emissions associated with uh, this place um how do we get people together, even if they come from a, they start from a, a non-zero sum loggerheads perspective? There's there's work to be done there, and, and that feels to me like a really important element of social mindfulness. So it's it's bringing in a sense both these mm-hmm. elements together. It's bringing the practices of mindfulness, everything we've learnt and understand about how mindfulness works at the individual level and bringing that yeah. uh, into that. And then conversely, you know, how do we deliberate and uh, enter into reflection together to have better decisions? Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have any thoughts yeah. on that. Yeah, I mean, plenty. Should we, uh, should we do another podcast? <laughs> yeah, why not? Maybe we'll need to get you back. That would be brilliant. <laughs> yeah. So, well, well firstly... Um, Yes, there is a movement within education, uh, both secondary school level and, and higher education, um, to to start uh, using mindfulness uh, not in ed- not just in education, which is to say, you know, that you have a, a program at some point to help people feel feel better and feel less stressed, etc. But but include mindfulness uh, as education. Exactly. So it, you know, it becomes part of that. Um, learning how to learn um, and the lens through which you then do everything with greater openness, curiosity, uh, approach state or, you know, a sense of uh, allowing attentiveness, you know, it, it all, it all becomes um, yeah, a primary lens and you can definitely do the same thing with, uh, with, with compassion. And, uh, and yes, I agree that the, the, the definition of social mindfulness varies and in fact a google a google search brings a slightly different um, definition uh, and it's top hits to, to, to either of our two um slightly different interpretations and that is um social mindfulness can refer to uh to being thoughtful of others and considering their needs huh. before making decisions at sort of interpersonal level so like if if you and i are going up to a cafe and there's two pieces of lemon cake and one of carrot cake huh. um the socially mindful choice, if I'm, you know, don't mind which I have, would be to have the kind of the lemon, the lemon cake, so that you have an equal, you know, you have both choices. Um, uh, that's social mindfulness. Okay. Um, so, so, uh, so, yeah, it might be, it might be that the term term evolves. I sometimes talk about ecological mindfulness as well, socially nice. ecological, or um, the Guardian article that covered our work uh, last month uh, used the term applied mindfulness, which I don't think. Uh, quite covers it either but but um but, but it's interesting that you know there's a search for a term um and uh and a, and a kind of uh, capture of a term i think 
so you know what, what, what we describe is close to to what you're saying. Yes, um, it's a you know it, we, it's a term for a particular mindfulness course, a type of training or an orientation of practice, which, as you say, uses the traditional practices and components of a mindfulness course to develop those foundational capacities, but turns the the lens, as it were, or broadens the lens from individual patterns of distress to to societal patterns, um, and 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 broadens the scope of potential solutions or changes one might like to make in one's life. To just you know, say, uh, making sure that you give you enough time to your spouse, or that you have a better work-life balance. Instead, you're looking at actually, I need to make sure that my council considers this and changes that and i want to still work with others to you know to demand you know, to resist this or, or or engage in collective um you know bargaining or something you know yes. yeah. uh, but and then you know bringing in what you're saying there is like you know uh, that but that's that's like the name for the particular training and then there's like you know how how do we have on an ongoing way the kind of uh, valuing or the kind of um, prioritization of, of what you might call social mindfulness um, which is, you know, how how we maintain that as a kind of hyper object in society. Yes. Um, that how we deliberate in, in in more skillful ways. How how we how we interact with each other. That's a kind of even broader definition I hadn't really thought about. And uh, yeah, and a, and a really good one. Absolutely. I mean, I I suppose. I mean, we should begin to wrap up now. But another sort of element of all of this, you know, going back to the the the. the, the the meta discussion we're having here about the relationship between uh, the, the, the mindfulness, uh, the arguments about mindfulness, the mindfulness work that you've presented, and and science, is in another word we haven't really mentioned much, but surely you know is there throughout all of this is the question of wisdom, um, mm. and you know so science for the Anthropocene is. Uh, oriented towards phrenesis as a, a situated strategic ethical wisdom, uh, as a, a broad-based capacity within society as a whole, uh, to which science as a, a, a body of professional expertise is a contribution, but is not uh, sort of uh, owned by it. And I think just sort of bringing in the language of wisdom, uh, I think really helps uh, with unpacking and perhaps reassuring people uh, that scientists, perhaps in particular, that this new agenda about mindfulness is not some sort of imperialistic pitch uh, to to take over science um, with, uh, mm. with with mm. mindfulness. No. Um, it's in the language of wisdom, though. We see clearly the 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 necessity for both elements of of learning and knowledge. You know, spe- specific d- dedicated practices of looking and seeing and learning. Uh, so a, a cognitive moment uh, to, to wisdom. But, but where that doesn't exhaust uh, that process, it, it's not exhausted by the purely cognitive. And this is what, in a sense, uh, an orientation to mindfulness brings to bear. And then they, they can start to enter into a debate, that will, into relationship with, with one another. So it it's not that precisely not that it, um, if everybody meditated everything would be okay right it's if there was more mindfulness in our culture and we were doing 
science and practice and even new mm. technologies, then things might be better. You know, it's it's mm. and it's it's the relationship, the all important relationship between both of those elements that I feel that you're calling for in your report and which, you know, of course, I wholeheartedly endorse uh, as, uh, as part of Science for the Anthropocene. Let's... There's, one, there's one image that might be helpful here very, Please. very briefly. Yes. And that, that's, I, I, got, I picked this up from a climate change campaign that I used to work with uh, you know, back in 2010. And, and that is of, of, a, of a flower that's trying to open and you have all these sort of delicate petals, and it's, it's a little bit like the Buddhist idea of an eightfold path, as in, as mm -hmm. in, it's not really linear, but there are all these things that need to kind of um, d dimensions of development that need to all go together, and integral theory and some of the Western stuff have a similar thing. But, but if you have one petal that isn't opening, it can be the thing that holds everything else back. So it, so Fantastic. it isn't like it, you know, change isn't all about that one petal, but at certain times it can be, yes, because it's the thing that has been completely ignored. Um, and so there are ways in which that might, you know, that might be the case in some beautiful. circumstances. Thank you, Jamie. Yes, beautiful. Let's end. And, and again, as you might know, we like to end on a, a standardised question just to wrap it up. So uh, with a brief answer, if we are currently going over the proverbial cliff and urgently need a new science for the Anthropocene, will we learn to fly? <laughs> like, kind of like, what, as you've alluded to already, we will learn to fly because we have to. Yeah. Uh, in my, you know, in my rational mind, looking at the probability of different things, the time that we've got, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, you know, fifty-fifty uh, at best. But in my bones, I have a sense of sort of faith and belief that, despite how desperate it looks, we will because we have to, and we will, and we will, as a result, create a better world. And the final line of our report is is that this is a, a beautiful coincidence um, that what we need to do to save ourselves uh, is uh, the same pathway to individual and collective well-being. Absolutely. Jamie Bristow, thank you very much for joining us. And thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this discussion as much as I have. And please, if you've enjoyed this episode, listen to the others too and tell just one friend about this podcast. Thanks for listening.